and welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast, your weekly podcast from the store in Belfast. Uh, we're doing our best to get into weekly content at the moment, be it interviews, which we've been doing quite a lot of recently, be it preview shows, and of course we want to get back on board with reviews as well. We're still playing a little bit of catch-up, but that's just because there's so much good stuff to talk about and we don't want you guys to miss out. So what we're going to be doing today is we are going to be going back in time through our uh, virtual time machine to the 23rd of March and then covering four weeks, taking us up to the 13th of April releases. So your host is always Alan, owner of the aforementioned Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, and I'm joined this evening once again by Keith. Good evening, and how are you, sir? I am good. I'm not not bad at all. I uh, busy busy all day at work today, but uh, I have uh, I'm pending holidays coming up next week, which means of course we're going to have to work hard to make sure we we stay ahead on that weekly content. Uh, holiday? What's that again? I know, I know. Uh, well, I mean, you've got a, a few days off coming up, you know, <laughs> for <laughs> a very the, different reason. The impending future. Um, yeah, it was. That's mad. I mean, with the. With the slightly extended uh, public holiday, thanks to the, 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 the Royal Jubilee celebrations, I think everybody's uh, flying to Spain and getting away because you can you can use less annual leaves. You get the entire nine days off. Um, we waited too late and uh, <laughs> flight prices were just ridiculous. So we're going to ferry across to, uh, to England and go to the fantastic Red Rooster Festival in Suffolk. Uh, I managed to get to that last last year, and it was just astounding. So, I'm going to take the car and the camping gear, and uh, and uh, have a little a little odyssey, a little ex- exploration. So what direction? So what you're saying is the royal family have finally proven useful. Well, yes, yes. Uh-huh. It yes. only took fifty years, six years, whatever. But that's a whole <laughs> other podcast. We're not going to get into that. We're only going to be talking comics here. And as I say, we're We've been messing around with format and so forth recently, and we've sort of quasi-settled on this uh, reviews format maybe once a month. It's still under a little bit of uh, consideration, as I say, but we're sort of looking at doing picks of the week, doing a monthly show with that, but making sure to extend out the rest of our portfolio with interviews and book clubs, and and just, just to give it a lot of variety as well, so... What we'll always be talking about here are the books that we enjoyed the most from uh, a certain week. So it's just in case you missed out, maybe didn't see the release of that book. We'll always advise you in terms of where the title is, whether it's far away from trade collections, whether it's hard to source single issues or play catch up if you want to do that. But yeah, it's just about keeping you guys informed and just us chatting about the comics that we, we enjoyed so much. So... As I said in the intro, we're going to be starting off with the 23rd of March, so going back a little bit, doing this is always dangerous, I find, because I was writing out my notes for reviews today, and I already have last week still to read, or at least half of them anyway, and then I do these reviews, and I remember why I enjoyed these books so much, and I'm thinking, I want to go back and read those, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's a dangerous is, one. It is, and, uh, you know, eight weeks worth of comics, uh, you know, we've that was so that was eight weeks ago, you know, two months ago. 23rd of March, but yeah, there's been a lot of stuff covered since. But uh, yeah, re- absolutely, sort of writing reviews, sort of reinvigorated my my uh, want to sort of read the second issues or the, the issues following up from this, you know. So, well, as I say, we kick things off on the 23rd of March, and we'll always give you our rundowns of titles as well as before. For for me this week, it was a total of 21 titles on my pull list, and the breakdown of that. <laughs> was 6 DC, I had 4 Marvel, and as ever, Indy accounted for more than half of my titles with 11 books this week. Uh, what about yourself? What were your numbers there? I squeaked one ahead of you with 22 titles total. Um, that was 5 DC, one less than your, your DC uh, totals. Uh, 10 Marvel, which was 4 more than your Marvel totals, and 7 Indies, which was 4 less 
in your Marvel totals. So, uh, yeah. Well, I find it hilarious that despite indie titles accounting for over half of my picks, my pick of the week this week was actually a DC book. And much to Keith's chagrin, I'm sure it is a oversized, silly-sized, premium-plus, black-label format book. But I'm about to tell you why you should be looking out for this in trade, especially given you're a Flash fan. And more than that, you're a Joshua Williamson Flash fan. So mm-hmm. the book I've picked as my pick of the week from this week was Rogues number one. So as I say, written by the aforementioned Joshua Williamson with art by Leo Max. And as I say, it's an oversized black label series which focuses on villains from the Flash. You know, it's not the easiest sell for a book, I think. You know, after all, the premium plus black label books, they do have a slightly divisive size and format. They're more expensive than regular comics. And given that it's a black label series for once, Batman and the Joker are nowhere to be seen. Who would have thunk it? But then you factor in Joshua Williamson, you know, a man who knows the Flash universe inside and out after a legendary Flash rebirth run. And then you have Leo Max on Artist, who is an Italian artist that I greatly liked on a title called Basketful of Heads. It was part of the, the Hill House Horror comics line. And he has a great style all of his own. And, and I think you have the ingredients for a great book. And to be honest, this is a brilliant book. So, Rogue's One, it opens up with a flashback setting the scene. We have a, a bar fight involving loads of villains and anti-heroes who feel hard done by. You know, they didn't make enough money on that score. They didn't cause enough chaos. They didn't get credit when they actually did something good because they were seen as villains, never heroes. It's a really fun way to open the book. It's visually fantastic and it's a great way of incorporating a massive cast of characters who have maybe been overlooked over the years. So we flash forward 10 years, and Captain Cold, or Leonard Snart, our main character for the series, and his cohorts are all well past their prime. You know, Snart, he's he's now working, you know, a soul-crushing factory job, and almost in his twilight years, and he even keeps up with his parole officer. He actually seems reformed, you know, for better or worse, and has left that life of crime. You know, his exploits are confined just to the annals of time, and sharing stories over a drink about the, the good old days. There are some people that do still recognize him as a villain and and a previous mastermind, but to most he's just very plain and nondescript. You wouldn't even give a second look to to old Leonard Snart. But one of the themes of the book is, you know, does any criminal ever truly reform? Do they ever leave that life behind? After all, they were able to plan and execute some of the most daring and dangerous heists in the history of Central City. Maybe they have life in the old legs yet. You know, maybe it's time for that one final score and then riding off into the sunset. But of course, Snart cannot pull off such a thing on his own. He's going to need to get the band back together. However, they're all at very different places in their lives uh, when the book kicks off, and they're not really sure they want to get mixed up with Snart again. So he's collecting his colleagues from all walks of life and from different parts of his colourful past. You know, there's Lisa Snart, also known as the Golden Glider. She's now a social worker, and her life is devoid of any excitement or joy. You've got James Jesse, better known as the Trickster who is now a self-parodying showman under the purple and red lights of a rundown second-rate casino showroom. And let's not forget Mick Rory, Heatwave, who, well, he hasn't fully given up on his horse in his past and remains committed to his role of supervillain, you know, with mixed degrees of success. So uh, clearly some of them are going to be easier to convince than others. You know, the writing and the setup is fantastic, as you would expect, but for me, Leo Max steals the show with his expressive, detailed and versatile art. He does an absolutely fantastic job working each character's complicated past into their look. 
you know, each of the rogues are world-weary and victims of aging, as sadly we all are. Uh, there's bags <laughs> under the eyes, scars that have not healed. They are no longer fit and able, 20-somethings able to cause havoc at a moment's notice. But because of the brilliant art and character design, they're all instantly recognisable. And similarly, Central City itself is both familiar and unrecognisable, certainly to snort anyway. It has the look and feel of a place leaving these old timers behind and they really don't want to change to keep up with the times. You know, this first issue overall for me, it was it's like Ocean's Eleven mixed with a Flash universe. And even though these characters are all, you know, by definition villains, there's a likability and a vulnerability to a lot of them. And you actually find yourself rooting for Snart. Well, you will for most of the book anyway. The first issue really ends on a dark note and it does remind you just how vicious and violent these villains can be when they're pushed. You know, even by the end of issue one, they reach a point of no return, and Snart is definitely not going back to his day-to-day job at the factory. Overall, I mean, this was a book I, I didn't even know an awful lot about it before it came out, and it turned out to be a really joyful surprise, and I knew it would be pick of the week as soon as I read it. I really cannot recommend it enough, and even if you are put off the size of premium black label titles for single issues, highly recommend picking up the collected edition when it comes around. It's going to be four issues in total. Two issues deep so far, and as I say, keep an eye out. We will certainly be uh, highlighting it when it is in the solicitations book for a future release. So, yeah, Rogues number one, my pick of the week for 23rd of March. Sounds awesome. Um, yep, yeah, I mean, obviously the silly size put me off, um, but uh, I'll definitely uh, look at and drive at that whenever it's, it's got a collected release. Isn't it funny that, you know, sometimes villains are around as long as the heroes and you're almost as familiar with them and Mm -hmm. you know you can find the humanity in them and even even villains that don't have a lot of humanity in them like the joker you're so familiar with you know you can there's sometimes you find yourself rooting for them you know because because of that you know and i mean snart's been both sides of the lines as well he's 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 done the hero thing you know or the the anti-hero thing uh times as well and he's well uh you know he's well portrayed in the in the flash tv show and all that sort of stuff so so uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Sounds really cool, and as you say, Joshua Williamson behind it. So uh, what's not to love? Yeah, clearly just couldn't fully leave the Flash universe behind. He had to <laughs> dip back in one way or another. But yeah, what was cool as well is it really just did focus on the villains. There was no Flash cameos. There was no heroes in the background lapping up a claim or anything. It it really did just focus on the sort of downtrodden life almost of a of a former criminal who, as I say, is no longer sort of able. But you know the old brain still works there. So. And again, it had that sort of Ocean's Eleven-y type feel. So that's what I mean by you were kind of on their side. They're sort of mm. like, the, oh, just let them do this one last job and then they'll be able to move on. And But as we all know, they're, they're never able to move on. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant book. And uh, I'm delighted to say issue two is every bit as good. So I'll, I'm sure I'll be talking about that in an upcoming episode as well. So Rogue's number one for me this week. What was your pick of the week? A number one for me as well with We Have Demons number one. And the solicit for this read that since the the very dawn of man, legends have been told of the conflict between angel and demon kind. Lam Lyle, a woman of science, dismissed these stories as just fiction, but then the loss of her father leads to the discovery of a hulking, benevolent demon named Helvis. Uh, Lam realizes that her life is about to undergo a dire new direction. With newfound partner and awesome new powers at her disposal, our hero suddenly finds herself thrust into a climatic war between good and evil, with no less than the fate of everything hanging in the balance. This is the first create her own collaboration from the superstar team of Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. After blockbuster work on titles like DC's Batman, th- that team 
brought their talents to Comixology, as this was originally part of Comixology Originals line of exclusive digital content only available on Comixology and, and through Amazon and your Kindle and whatnot. And it was released that way back in October and is now available in print uh, via our pals at Dark Horse Comics. Now, we all know that Scott Snyder and Pinsler Greg Capullo are one of my esteemed co-hosts' favourite pairings, mm-hmm. given their work on Court of Owls and beyond. My own relationship has been a little more fraught, particularly with uh, that Snyder fella. Uh, I feel that he, Court of Owls and Noctera aside, tends to lose the run of himself a little bit. Um you know, especially when he's dealing with the more sort of a cosmic or multiversal nature of things, see Dark Knight's Metal and Death Metal for further details, uh, tends to lead to sort of convoluted stories and maybe for me less than satisfying conclusions. But I mean, there might be a danger of that happening here for sure, but uh, that's a tomorrow problem because I thoroughly enjoy the high concept, tone, characters and backstory introduced in this almost perfect first issue um, of this new creator-owned series, again called We Have Demons. Um, Inker John Glapion, uh, colorist Dave McKeg and letter Tom Napolitano are along for the roller coaster ride here. Uh, McKeg's name will no doubt be familiar as the talent who's currently doing a phenomenal job recoloring The Walking Dead, allowing us to rediscover that modern classic all over again. Um, but back to the story at hand. Um, the basic gist of the story has Lam Cullen, a young woman whose arm has been amputated below the elbow as a child by her father, it turns out, uh, relating her life story to her neighbours, the Spoons. Her father was a preacher with a secret and it caused her to leave home. Her stepmom calls her and tells her that the father's dead and she goes to the funeral where there are a bunch of people that she doesn't recognise. And after the service, she finds a secret room in her dad's church. Uh, where she's met by her stepfather, who tells her the truth about her father. He's a demon hunter, part of a legacy that that extends back for thousands of years. And she finishes telling her neighbours this, and she's using her father's axe to see if they're demons. It doesn't light up, and she starts to relax, fall asleep, uh, just as they transform into demons. Uh, She's able to escape them, but she's cornered when her father's old partner, uh, himself a demon, shows up and saves the day. And, uh, you know, as I say, not the not the partner she was expecting. Um, that's just the basics. That's just the gist. There is so much exposition here and it's handled very skillfully by Snyder and beautifully by the art team. Capullo sort of really is a great artist, both in stillness and in action. And I think he's accessing those years of drawing Spawn as the basis of his stunning work here. Um Lamb seems like a really good point of view character. She's a demon hunter by legacy, following in her father's footsteps, but totally unable to get her head around it or grasp even the basic concept of what she might be capable of. You know, she's she's a bright character. She's a ballsy protagonist. Um, she's known, as you learn through the exposition, you know, a lot of pain from an early age, but it hasn't jaded her. It hasn't, you know, colored her dark. Um and we see everything through her youthful but experienced eyes and words and you know we're we're, we're very quick to learn that the basic uh high concept that underpins the universe that that snyder's building here it's uh it starts a hundred thousand years ago so there's plenty to play with in the common in the common issues i would say and uh you know it it, it focuses really primarily on the legend of nine 
uh, you know, of 5,000-year-old ancient blades uh, made from a, a particular element that's imbued with good, uh, that these blades have been given to nine champions around the world to fight off the darkness that is inevitably born into the universe alongside the light. So there's a there's a there's a long and deep mythology to this book, uh, making the exposition absolutely necessary, and I'm really looking forward to exploring it, and especially, you know, especially when it looks and feels as good as this. So thoroughly enjoyed this, thoroughly enjoyed this first issue, and uh, you know, I've, I've got my teeth into the second one as well. You were on this, of course. Oh, of course. I mean, I managed to restrain myself from reading this digitally. This came out, as you say, as part of what was called Scotttober, where Scott Snyder. He teamed up with sort of three or four of the, the top artists in the game and released a lot of comics through Comixology, did it digitally, but, you know, people pine for the, the print copies. And I'm very happy I waited because it is a gorgeous looking book that I think mm. wouldn't have been done justice in an iPad uh, viewing situation. But yeah, just these two working together, as I say, it's just, you know, it's an instant sell for me. And I always like Snyder most when he goes into horror, you know, whether it's witches or whether Court of Owls is at its heart, it's a horror story. Uh, you know, so I love it when he, he accesses that part of himself and this is very much a horror book and as you say it's almost like Greg Capullo just got let off the reins was like you don't have to work for DC here you do whatever <laughs> character designs you want and he went to town on it as you say a lot of that was you know <clears throat> skills and design he honed on Spawn on a title called Haunt as well for Image Comics of course you that know, was a Haunt was a McFarlane, Kirkman and Capullo yes I was going to say it was a Kirkman title yeah, yeah short lived well not really uh -huh. short lived but just I suppose next to Spawn it was short lived but but yeah, even just like the setup in this book, I love the art style. I love the widescreen panels. I love the, yeah, the sort of exposition on the left and the panels on the mm -hmm. right. It was unique looking. It was. It used the medium. It used the medium well. Very much so, and it's it's clearly two masters of their craft. You know, they've they've they're you know they're not newcomers to the game. You know, I always think of Snyder as this young writer, but you know he's he was writing top tier DC fair in twenty eleven, which depressingly is eleven years ago. You know, so these are very much masters of their. Uh, of their craft you know Capullo's stuff's great so the the colors are great uh yeah i love the first issue my only my only complaint with it and it's it's a slightly selfish one is that the book is so thick and you're halfway through it and you're really enjoying it and then you have this like pitch and script and i understand giving extra value to the book and stuff yeah, yeah. And, and i enjoyed that back matter don't get me wrong i did read through it and stuff but it's just it wasn't story exactly i was re i was yeah. enjoying the story so much that i would have happily taken you know more of mm -hmm. that but yeah we're we're as far as issue two has come out it, it continues the same uh the same sort of uh quality it's a very adult title we should state as well you know it does get very violent there is some you know harsh language and stuff in it as well but as i say i think that all comes from having the freedom to just express themselves rather than having a dc editor going nope can't do that can't do that can't do that so yeah just very pulpy lots of imagination and yeah, just a, it's a great book to sit alongside Noctera, I think. I think they're good bedfellows, you know, in terms of tone. So yeah, yeah I think you're I think you're yeah, you're you're right actually. It's a really it's a really good match. As I say, Snyder and Horror with a bit of action thrown in. For me that's his wheelhouse. So yeah, great choice. It was it was high up my list this week as well. So yeah, we have Demons number one. It's gonna be a three issue mini series, each issue being oversized. And I believe there might be a sequel series on the horizon. So, as I say, there's one more single issue to come out. And then I'm sure we'll have trade sometime soon. I think we even may have highlighted it in a previous uh, previews podcast. 
So, yeah, that is 23rd of March. So we keep on rattling right along and we move on to the 30th of March. And in a perfect bit of synchronicity, my titles are the exact same. I have 21 titles. Slight change <laughs> is in Marvel and Indy. So my DC randomly is the same amount, which is six. I had five Marvel as opposed to four the week before and 10 Indy as opposed to 11. So 21 titles total this week for me. How about you? 19 for me, uh, four of them DC, nine of them Marvel, six of them Indy. Excellent. So strong week this week. Holy moly. Going back, I remember this week, even when I read it, I think I even dropped a message in the group chat saying this is going to be a hard week to do pick of the week. <laughs> so what I landed at for me was Dark Ages number six. So this is written by Tom Taylor. Check him off your bingo card. Uh, art by Iban Coelho and... As I say, this was a seriously tough week to narrow down to one pick of the week. You know, 30th of March saw the the return of Something is Killing the Children. It saw the return of Ram v. Swamp Thing. It had issue two of Jock's One Dark Night. It had the best issue yet of DC vs. Vampires, number six, which I knew would appeal to my co-host here. And it also had the excellent opening chapter of Shadow War Alpha. In other words, an absolute ton of DC goodness. So, of course, it's a Marvel title. It just edged it for me. And it was <laughs> Tom Taylor's swan song to Marvel. You know, we've we've spoken about it before. But, you know, it is a bit of a shame that Tom Taylor has signed exclusively with DC. You know, of course, as we all know, I have a preference for DC. So, more titles from him playing in that sandbox are, of course, welcomed. But his Marvel work, I think, has been nothing short of stellar. From all-new Wolverine to his War of the Realms one-shots to Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man and, and now Dark Ages. And... And Dark Ages, it's <clears throat> it's got so many moving parts, it could have easily been a 12-issue maxi-series. So if there is, just to get a slight bit of negativity or criticism out of the way, just for this issue, it's that some parts are maybe a little rushed, but you'll barely notice, to be honest, because of how many brilliant, genuinely jaw-dropping moments there are in this final issue. So, so issue 6, it picks up after Peter Parker was able to save Miles Morales from the twin threats of Venom and Carnage. And what a great issue that was as well. <clears throat> And Peter Parker and the rest of the heroes learn of Apocalypse's plans to project his consciousness into the Unmaker and therefore to be able to take over and rule the entire universe. So they must also deal with Purple Man. By the way, what an adversary he has been in recent Marvel titles. Yeah, Purple Man absolutely. suddenly is like the most important <laughs> villain in Marvel yeah, comics. Yeah, yeah. I think it was something about uh, his maybe his appearance in Jessica Jones in the TV series that reminded people that he's a bit of a bit of a bit of a badass, bit of a creep. Yeah, I mean, in this title, he's, you know, he's exerted will over, you know, all of the hero's friends. So the, the heroes are sort of split down the middle here. Half of them are under Purple Man's control and the other half are fighting to save them. So, you know, will the world be saved or will darkness prevail? And, you know, this being a Tom Taylor, you know, outside of canon book, the great thing is you know that no one's safe. You know, heroes will be sacrificed and lost along the way. Stakes will be raised and, and the heroes might not necessarily win in the end. But as well as weaving an entertaining, intense narrative throughout, there's also interesting themes at work here, I think. You know, it, at its core, Dark Ages, it goes against the grain of the usual dark future trope that often populates alternate universe comics. Uh, and that has remained true through the series. You know, it's very interesting that the ultimate goal is for the heroes of the Marvel Universe to make a better world, despite the loss of, loss of technology. You know, who says a post-apocalyptic world has to be a bad thing, Parker says, in one of the, the more emotive moments of the series, because Tom Taylor's always good at throwing those wee emotional moments in as well. 
But Taylor is also able to display the perfect balance between the grimness of the situation and making sure to inject humour into the tale. You know, he even achieved the impossible throughout this book in my eyes as he was able to make Deadpool both hilarious and an integral part of the hero's plan. It's too bad we'll never see a Tom Taylor scripted solo anytime soon as I would have been all over that and I think that would have even appealed to you, Keith, as well. The writing, of course, is on point, but the book succeeds just as much because of the wonderful art and issue six is Coelho's best work in the series. You know, he delivers some jaw-dropping action sequences there's one particular sequence involving Wolverine going up against the mind-controlled Cyclops. But the, the thing is here, he's still cognitive and he knows what he's doing. He tries to keep his eyes closed for as long as possible. But the X-Men leader's optic blast shreds his teammates flesh and bone off in a series of horrific panels. You know, this book is not one for Wolverine fans who don't want to see their hero bettered. And this was one of those jaw-dropping moments I mentioned before. You know, there's an absolutely amazing two-page spread which depicts the Purple Man's mind-control heroes against their counterparts. Colossus and She-Hulk wrestle, Doctor Doom engages in battle with Dracula, Spider-Man darts around Captain America. It's, it feels like pure wish fulfillment from when you were a kid and you wanted to see these heroes do battle to find out who is the toughest and best. You know, we even get a great moment involving Blade, which is, I think, few and far between in modern Marvel titles. Although on that side, no, can we please get a Rodney Barnes scripted Jason Sean Alexander drawn Blade book sometime soon, please? Mm, sounds good. Sounds oh. good. Now that said, I mean, he's he's not doing too bad in Jason Aaron's Avengers. Avengers seems to be the only thing he pops in, up in, though, you know what I mean? He, the last thing I can remember him outside of Avengers was a Wolverine versus Blade one-shot. And, Indeed. you know, and I think, was there a title? Was it Strike Force he was in for a little while yeah, as well? Yeah, that's right. We, we do have the upcoming Daughter of Blade. Well, that is true as well stemming out from the free comic book day avengers x-men issue of course uh, but yeah uh overall i thought this was a brilliant series and and again it'll be hitting trade soon because this was the swan song to the series cannot recommend it enough it delivers a fitting swan song to tom taylor's time at marvel and i think coelho's art was a more than worthy companion to this pretty bittersweet goodbye till yeah enjoyed it enjoyed it uh i mean obviously uh tom taylor written it's a wee bit of a you know um alternative universe take on a thing you know but it was a really interesting really interesting take uh did enjoy it uh looked absolutely gorgeous um yeah be worth going back and reading again and i imagine this will be this will be out in trade fairly soon i would say so it'll probably be out in the next few weeks i would say though i'll have to confirm an exact date but uh yeah dark ages six my pick of the week and it looks like we have a marvel clean sweep this week what did you go for uh i have got uh ghost rider number two uh it's the second issue of ben percy's new ghost rider series in which uh the fbi assigns a team to investigate the recent surge in supernatural activity uh Mulder and scully here we come uh, there's a darkness rising and the, their hunt uh, for answers puts them in a collision course with the mysterious vengeful motorcyclist who is this so-called ghost rider and what does he want? And they follow rumours, they follow wreckage and they discover the dark secrets of a roadside motel. There's something about this title that uh, reminds me of the 90s Howard Mackie run, in tone at least, and that is far from a bad thing. Um, there's definitely a sniff of old EC comics and old uh, uh, British anthology horror comics about it. It's dark and it's grotesque. It's part psychological thriller. It's part slasher movie. And there's even a wee sniff noir. Um, total package here from, from Ben Percy. And 
Uh, I don't know if you're reading it, but if you're not, you definitely you definitely should be. Yeah, I've read issue one of it. Issue two is just uh, one of those ones where, again, I've fallen my own sword where I didn't have quite enough copies by the time the demand was there for the, the second issue. So I will get to it at some point. Good, good. I mean, I, I enjoyed Ed Breeson's run on Ghost Rider, but, um, I mean, Ben Percy is straight in no kissing with this new volume. Um, he's made it quite clear that he's... Is is he straight in no kissing because he knows every Ghost, seri- uh, Ghost Rider series gets cancelled seven issues in? It's very possible. It's very possible. But he's made it clear that he's stripping things back uh, and he's focusing for now at least on the original Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze. There are no spirits of vengeance. You know, there's no mention of the the lore or the the backstory. Um, You know, we haven't even, you know, all of that stuff has has been stripped away. Um, And so the book's left with one thing, and that's John Blaze, you know, a man with a, a monster, a demon trapped inside him. And uh, you know the the awful awful horrors that that monster must face, but he's not Ghost Rider. Isn't a spirit of justice. He's a spirit of, of vengeance, and that's the name in which that he he faces these things. So, first issue saw Johnny Blaze living you know a perfect life, he had a wife, two kids, a home in a lovely small town. But he had a a motorcycle accident, and after that things weren't weren't the same. You know there was darkness spreading around, and he started having nightmare visions. And the quiet town showed himself for what it really was, a prison. And now the spirit of vengeance is reborn and Johnny and Ghost Rider are seeking, you know, the people who are responsible for their for their imprisonment. And, I mean, Ghost Rider is a horror comic through and through. It, you know, this these first two issues sort of get into you and stay with you for a while whenever you put the book down. It's, it's grotesque and psychological. Um... You know, so not just gory in its horror. You know, it's that that psychological element as well, especially in this issue. And Benjamin Percy understands, I think, fundamentally that you know the idea of not remembering what you've done is frightening. You know, especially when you learn it's something bad. And that's sort of the the essence of Ghost Rider and Johnny Blaze. And in a nutshell, there's a monster inside Johnny, and it's although we know it to be sort of a force of good it's it's brutal and its brutality is enough to to drive you know someone like johnny to drink um so yeah i mean it's this issue sees sees blaze trying to piece together who trapped him and in, in this weird pleasantville state type situation you know uh that turned out to be a hell in the first issue you know he's hitting the road and getting into demonic shenanigans shenanigans he's also grappling with the facts that he has next to no memory and has a gash in the back of his head that occasionally has an eyeball popping out of it. So, I mean, there's body horror here that the likes of which we haven't really seen since since Immortal Hulk. Um, and, you know, Corey Smith is the artist here, the penciler. <laughs> and whenever, whenever Blaze, whenever Ghost Rider comes out, uh, we have, you know, skin-melting rendition of, of the supernatural transformation. It's just absolutely... <laughs> sort of grotesque but gripping at the same time and it's and it's sort of really rawness and you know blaze is sort of in recovery mode he's trying to understand why things have changed between him and ghost rider uh you know he, it was previously more two-way and now it seems to be nearly a swap out thing whenever ghost rider's there he's gone whenever he's there ghost rider's gone you know but he's crashing at the the cave-in motel in idaho in this small town uh, and taking on odd jobs to make a little cash to fix his bike and that leads him to discover that the owner 
has the unexpectedly disturbing secret of hidden two-way mirrors in every room so they can watch people with. And Blaze then stumbles upon the grotesque human sacrifice scheme and from there, of course, vengeance is served. Um, it's it's a fairly done-in-one story, but it's, it's clearly part of Johnny's overarching sort of uh, story uh, here to find out why... He, who trapped him and Ghost Rider in their own personal hell. Um, the, maybe one of the best things about this run is, you know, obviously it's 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 a really good tone for Ghost Rider, but it's, it's new reader friendly. Um, you know, the first issue was, the second issue isn't any different from that. You know, you could, you could easily jump on here. Um, so yeah, good, uh, really, really good, solid Ghost Rider fun. Um, and as I say, Corey Smith's art is a good match for the story that Ben Percy is telling, and I almost think he's he's turning it down a wee bit in the mundane scenes, though, so that he can contrast that whenever he dials it up and the spirit of vengeance rides again. It's uh, it's really cool stuff. Uh, very much, very much enjoying it. But you said you read the first issue, but not the second issue. Yeah, I enjoyed the first issue quite a lot actually, and as you say, it was very new reader friendly. I've not read a lot of Ghost Rider in my time, if I'm completely honest. I I've always sort of been told the 90s runs were where it was at. Uh, Mark Texiera as well, I believe, did a really good run mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. what I understand. I have a couple of uh, regulars in store who are big Ghost Rider fans, so they tend to try and guide me in the in the right direction. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed first issue. As I say, it was just a case of, you know, falling on my own sword, as I say, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. selling my own issues. But, you know, the last time I did that was a body horror title as well, and I ended up having to buy all those back. <laughs> I'm a mortal Hulk, but it's all safely in the collection now, so it's all good. Good uh, stuff. Yeah, so that is Ghost Rider 2, Keith's pick of the week then for 30th of March. So we keep this train rolling and we go straight into April. So 6th of April is the first new comic book day of this month, and numbers wise, slightly more reduced week this week. Uh, for me, it was 18 titles. It's probably the first time I haven't, you know, broke 20 and i don't know how long but mm-hmm. four dc four marvel nice even split there and then 10 indie as ever indie winning out the day how about yourself i had a like you a rare uh, a rare week of uh, of, uh, of low numbers um not that it's not welcome you understand uh a 15 wee, titles only we break every so often is not a bad thing uh, yeah definitely allows you to catch up a wee bit uh so 15 titles for me two dc nine marvel four indie excellent so with my pick of the week for this week, I'm slightly cheating. Uh, my pick of this week is Flashpoint Batman Night of Vengeance number one. So this is written by Bran Azzarello and art by Eduardo Risso. And as I say, I'm slightly cheating with this pick as it wasn't a new release per se, but more of a re-release of previous material. But but rereading it all these years later, it became clear that it had lost absolutely none of its power. And it was actually a really nice nostalgic reminder for me of the era that got me into single issue collecting in comics. You know, I've I've spoken before. I was I was more of a trade guy for a number of years. You know, I would pick up trades all the time. But I wasn't really a single issue guy. But it was the DC event flashpoint. You know, that cleared the decks for better or worse, depending on your point of view, and made it accessible for new readers to jump in feet feet first. So flashpoint, you know, it was it was centered around the idea of Barry Allen going back in time to save his mother. However, the butterfly effect of that one action led to massive changes in the DC universe. For the relevance of this title, suddenly it was Bruce Wayne who was shot and killed by Joe Chill, and his father Thomas Wayne became Batman, and his mother Martha was driven mad with grief over losing her son, and became the Joker. 
so that's where this title comes in it was it was originally published all those years ago as a three issue tie-in miniseries to the main flashpoint title but it was a new release this week in that it's been collected into a one edition uh, as we prepare for the return of the flashpoint universe in jeff john's flashpoint beyond you know it's it's great to see that we're returning to that world as it's such a rich and epic reinterpretation of the batman mythos so in this oversized issue we take a look back at that origin story of thomas wayne's alternate universe batman in a different twist in the story to what we're usually told we we follow a weathered jim gordon who's borderline useless in this universe and thomas wayne as they take the battle to gotham's underworld the story takes a really dark twist as the joker kidnaps the district attorney's twin children of course the district attorney has to have twins uh so begins a race against time for the coiled hero but it's not the hero we know and that's where it's possibly even more tragic than the original Batman origin. You know, it takes the pain of losing a child to the extremes and shows just how that grief can manifest in different ways. Whether it be anger and rage or sorrow and madness. You know, the DC Universe, especially when dealing with Batman and Gotham, can often be accused of being dark. Well, this takes it up to 11, I can tell you. The writing of Bran Azzarello is phenomenal. You know, you were talking before about, with Ghost Rider 2, that sometimes you read things that just stick with you they just stay with you for a little while and once you open this book you're taken on that dark journey and events from the book really do stick with you especially from the third issue which involves gordon there's tons of world building that you keep going over you know his version of batman is exceptional and multi-layered you know many of the traditional batman trappings that we've come to know and love are completely absent from this story you know when we visit thomas's you know bat cave it's almost empty almost uncomfortably so you know, this is the complete opposite of the notion of, you know, all of those wonderful toys. You know, there's no plethora of Batmobiles, there's no trophies from past cases, no hint of nostalgia. There's just one giant computer. There is the silhouette of the iconic giant dinosaur, admittedly, but its presence here is not a playful one, I would guess. It's probably more just a symbol that is actually representative of Thomas Wayne as Batman, a lumbering old beast that shouldn't exist in this world. Undoubtedly, um, you know, representative of him, and it's... It's only in a stripped-back story like this that we come to realise how many toys our traditional Bruce Wayne Batman really has. You know, there's there's a wonderful confrontation with Killer Croc in this book. Perfect opportunity to use stealth or agility, mixed in with some batarangs, knockout gas, or his grappling hook to move around Croc. Not this Batman, I'm afraid. He likes to get up close and personal, so stabs a blade into Croc's head instead. On another occasion, he comes across a victim of the Joker's toxin. You know, Thomas doesn't attempt to cure him or take samples to better understand what has happened. He simply snaps the victim's neck and brushes it off as a mercy killing. You know, this version of Batman has much more in common with Frank Miller's take in The Dark Knight Returns as opposed to any traditional canon Batman. Again, this has been re-released and presented as an origin story, so it can remind you of the groundwork already laid for that upcoming series, so I can't wait to see what Azzarello continues to build in this world. You know, the, the artwork is astonishing. You know, I've always been a fan of Eduardo Risso, particularly when it is in tandem with Azzarello, as in their crime epic that I talk about all the time, 100 Bullets. You know, Risso's work is all long, terrifying shadows, vibrant, almost sleazy colours. You know, the book is coloured by his long-time colours, Patricia Mulvihill, who really does bring in the best out of his work. And this, of course, suits this version of Gotham, which is all casinos, streetwalkers, bars, nightclubs. You know, his characters are expressive and alluring and his work is so rich and detailed. As a three-issue miniseries, as it was originally, it more than stands on its own. It achieves a heck of a lot in those three issues in terms of characterization and world-building. 
and it even manages to tell a three-act story with a definitive ending. But it's always seemed a shame to leave it there, I think. It may have taken over a decade, but I'm really looking forward to diving into this world again. So bring on Flashpoint Beyond, which uh, you may just hear about very, very soon. <laughs> fair, fair. Were you, were you a reader of Flashpoint at the time when the new 52 came in? I don't know if we've ever had this discussion. No, I wasn't a reader of the new 52, uh, nor of Flashpoint. I read Flashpoint after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, with uh, what I, uh, uh, yeah, the flash, the whole thing was flash going back to see his mother, changing history and getting flash fried at the start of that and, and all sorts of things. I don't, yeah, I, yeah, I got a vague recollection. Um, so, but it was never, it wasn't my, it just wasn't my thing at all. Um, I did, I was all, I, I got the whole of 52 mm-hmm. and countdown, which was, I guess, was the countdown towards the new 52. But uh, I was so fed up with it by the time I finished, that's sort of where. <laughs> Where I jumped off and took a wee break from the, uh, had the, from the DC universe. Had the opposite yeah. effect for you rather than the actual effect. Yeah, and then I didn't really jump back in again until Rebirth. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, the New 52, it is a, it's a divisive time because long-term readers were sort of of the opinion of, well, I've been reading all these comics for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. You're telling me nothing matters now. But it was a way, as I say, of clearing the decks, uh, bringing in new readers. I mean, come on, it led to me opening a comic book store. That may have never mm-hmm. happened if not for the new 52 and and there's some wonderful wonderful runs through there that you know i know the two of us always have a backlog of stuff we need to read anyway but you know the animal man run through new 52 the swamp thing run by scott snyder again another Mm -hmm. horror book that he does so well you've obviously dabbled in batman you know justice league dark the wonder woman run the flash run there's a lot of good stuff in there but I think in the end, DC maybe looked at it as maybe we have alienated a lot of those older readers. So then uh-huh. they brought it back with Rebirth and sort of restored a lot of that stuff. But now the Flashpoint universe is one that I really am interested in. It's one of the few big events from either of the big two where I read every single tie-in just because it was a reimagining of every single yes. world. That was really yeah. interesting. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, great great stuff. I mean, again, if you ever get the chance to go back and read, I highly recommend it. But, you know, those reading piles don't get any smaller. No, they definitely don't. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I did I did read it. I read the core the core series. I didn't read a lot of the stuff around Flashpoint, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm actually not dipping into Flashpoint, this this sequel at all. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a, not, you, not, you not might touching be slightly, it, I don't think. You might be slightly lost in, it, in fairness if you weren't reading the other stuff. So, it I don't think this Flashpoint Beyond will be too user-friendly if you're new to comics because, mm. and we'll get into it obviously in probably in about 10 minutes or so, but it is very reliant on knowledge from Doomsday Clock, reliant on knowledge from the Rebirth one-shot Jeff Johns does. You know, it's it's very it's very Jeff Johns in the DC universe, you know what mm. I mean? He ignores a lot of other stuff and just focuses on his, but we'll get to that all in a minute. Yeah, I mean, that said, I've read all of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read Doomsday Clock and Three Jokers and... and uh, you know his his DC thingy one shot and mm-hmm. and that it just didn't you know it just didn't grab me you know Batman's Batman's daddy is Batman just isn't my <laughs> just not terribly interested hashtag not my Batman <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. well no it's just not what I'm interested in you know I read I mean in the same I read you know he was in that uh, you know the button and and all of that sort of stuff as well you know so yeah it's linked to that uh, as well yeah so yeah it's... yeah. But yeah, this this one shot just read on its own is is fantastic, and rereading it again, it just makes me really want to read a hundred bullets, and that's a hundred issues of time I do not have at the moment. But 
I really someday, want to do Alan, it. Someday. Apparently, I'm going to be having a lot of late nights and feeding sessions where I can do a lot of reading. So we'll, yeah, uh, yeah. we'll see how cognitive I am for those reading sessions. I thought that's what you were saving up your TV shows for. Yeah, well, I, I, only if they're TV shows only that I watch. That's the problem. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course, of course. But uh, yeah, no, that's 6th of April. So my choice was uh, slightly cheating, but I stand by it. Flashpoint, Batman, Night of Vengeance, number one. So what about yourself? What was your standout title from this week? Uh, my standout title, and it was sort of a fair head and shoulders, I think, was West of Sundown, number one, uh, in which a beautiful ancient vampire must flee monster slayers in New York City and reclaim the ancestral sto- soil that restores her undead flesh. Uh, but things have changed since she was reborn in the New Mexico desert, and now Constance Darabend and her loyal ex-Confederate assistant Dooley must adapt to life in the rough frontier town of Sangre de Moro. It's a Western tale of survival, but probably not in the way that you expect, and it just about ticks all of my boxes. It's a, a glorious and gory hybrid of uh, of a Sergio Leone Western uh, mixed with the best of Hammer House of Horror, uh, you know, so you know those two those two things are just <laughs> just my bread and butter. It's a story of an America that's emerging from the Civil War and heading towards the the twentieth century apace, a la Red Dead Redemption, but with more than than a foot in the past and in the old world of, of Europe. Um, it's been described as a supernatural spaghetti western and comes from Tim Seeley, Aaron Campbell, Jim Terry, Trina Farrell, and Vault Comics. And I have great faith in Tim Seeley. In addition to his awesome Nightwing run, he has great credentials across the horror and slasher comic genres. But, you know, it is absolutely in Aaron Campbell's wheelhouse here where his background is in Dark Shadows, Green Hornet, uh, The Shadow and Sherlock Holmes. And the two of them don't waste any time in introducing the central characters, the vampire Constance Derabend and uh, I believe Abend is German for night. Uh, that's probably not a mistake. And her human familiar, Dooley, Dooley O'Shaughnessy, he's an Irish immigrant fighting in the on the Confederate side of the of the American Civil War. Um, well, the backdrop is that of a Western. There's also, you know, America, you know, finding its new self and its identity in the modern world. It's a country of immigrants and of violence, but also the supernatural. And Seeley summed it up himself. Uh, saying as you know, as I said before, this is like Sergio Leone's westerns meets meets the Hammer horror films, and there are moments of like real uh, del taunt sort of refinery, and and then there's the the rough, dusty cowboy culture, uh, just in equal parts. Um, really, really cool sort of snapshot of America at that time, you know, in the 19th century that. The book opens in, I think, 1861, as I say, where we meet Confederate soldier Dooley O'Shaughnessy, and he's trying to bury some bodies after a battle and clearly not doing too well on himself. One of the graves near him, uh, there's a little bell on it, and that bell is now dinging, and we see a woman climb out of it, and that's where we meet uh, Constance Durabend. She basically, basically reveals herself to be a vampire and takes Dooley as her as her familiar. Um Seems she had she had hoped to sleep through, as she says, at Jefferson Davis's little war. Uh, but now she's been awakened and she's getting Dooley to transport her to New York City. And we see over the next 10 years or so that the two have moved through high society with Constance being brought all sorts of meals to keep her alive and Dooley following her instructions to, in, you know, to ensure that the, the, the people that she brings, that he brings her are, are terrible people and that she's not just 
killing for herself. Uh, you know, but it also sort of assuages his conscience a little bit that uh, that the two of them are doing some good. Um, but that then comes to an end as someone sets fire to her home and the soil from her homeland is now gone for her. She's wounded and she's scarred and she's weak. And she now has to make the long trek towards the American Southwest, largely in a coffin by ship at first with sort of duly protecting her until they can get close to where she came from. Uh, where that that soil you know will help her heal and become whole once more but it's not an easy journey and we see it all from Dooley's point of view through his diary with him talking about the journey itself and some of his own upbringing and how the whole thing's impacted him um you really get a good idea of of, of who Dooley is and constance herself has this air of mystery and and regality about her and uh, you know she's got a great look and a costume design that really enforces that and we aren't given her origin story yet, but I think that's a good thing because we're teasing this out a little more. And I think that speed works well, you know, considering, you know, we, we cover like 10 years in the first issue. And uh, I'm interested in just seeing how, how this all sort of works out, you know, and it's cool to see how they work together on the journey. Um, John Terry's art is a wee bit reminiscent of Francesco Francavilla. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Got that horror uh, tinge to it. I I thought so. At uh, horror, but also sort of nearly sort of pulp fiction sort of thing going on. Not not the movie, but the actual pulp fiction, you know. Um, and you know, Triona Farrell's colors. There's there's a lot of lot of browns and and yellows. There's the gothic and the the, the classic western. You know, the sunsets and the dust. And, uh, and the dreary nights and the shadows and uh, it all works just very very well together it's really the whole the whole issue is really cinematic uh you know even though you don't have you know the the, the panels are quite tight you know um western the western genre you know is is nearly it's nearly america's mythology you know and uh whenever you add a dash of horror to it uh, as they do in West of Sundown, uh, you get this great gun-toting, gory story of vampire mythos, American history in the Wild West, um, and, and a real promise of, I think, more horror to come. I haven't read issue two yet, but I'm really excited to do so. Were you on this? Oh, I was on this, absolutely. I mean, this this actually marked the writing debut of Aaron Campbell. We know his artwork from uh, Hellblazer. Uh, yeah, we know true, his uh, work from he's doing Suicide Squad Blaze at the moment as well. So, yeah, I mean this this gave me very American vampire vibes. Which not to bring it back to Snyder and horror, but <laughs> in the best possible way. You know, I I really dug the first issue. I mean, the old adage of never judge a book by its cover is completely lost in comics because the cover to this is phenomenal. It looks like a seventies exploitation poster, and they they've continued that theme throughout and. It very much is representative of what's inside as well. So, yeah, I really, really dug this. I mean, this is the kind of title that it's one of those frustrating ones as a store because you have faith in the title, you love the title, but it's from a smaller publisher, so they don't do massive print runs. Uh, so you're sometimes not sure how many to order, but the first issue of this I thought was great, and issue two is just as good. I've I've indulged in that, so mm -hmm. uh, it does continue that uh, same quality. But yeah, Vault Comics in general, um, for anybody listening, you know, keep an eye on their stuff because there's some really good titles coming out from Vault Comics. We always try and push them a wee bit in the previews pod, but 
ultimately there you're you're sort of pushing the the idea rather than the execution because you haven't read it yet but uh no vault comics are doing some wonderful things and this is just another another good example so yeah great pick west of sundown number one so we'll mm-hmm. rattle on then and finish off with one more week's worth of uh, picks of the week. And this is going to be from the 13th of April. So the titles jumped up a little bit this week. This was a big week for me, not just single issue wise, but, you know, with a couple of other bits and bobs I picked up. So 24 titles in total for me this uh, week. Again, Indy leading the way with 14 issues and then an even split between DC and Marvel with five of each. But... In addition to the single issues, I also picked up the Gotham Central Omnibus, one of the single best things ever in Gotham City-related comics, uh, all in one glorious volume. And this week also saw the release of the latest Reckless hardcover, The Ghost in Me, which, you know, we're, we probably, neither of us have picked as our pick of the week because you're probably bored hearing about us talking about Reckless. <laughs> That's but exactly why. <laughs> holy crap, it is. it was fantastic. It was arguably the best one yet, but it just, that might be recency bias. It just seems like they get better with each volume, but I haven't went back and reread any of them, but yeah, always great stuff. So, so yeah, so 24 titles for me plus those two, uh, those two hardcovers. Uh, what about yourself? It was 19 titles for me this week. Um, three from DC, nine from Marvel, seven from Indy. Plus, I had two image hardcovers, the aforementioned Reckless, the Ghost of New hardcover uh, by, uh, you know, Ed Brubaker. Uh, absolutely phenomenal stuff. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it in other places, but uh, this particular one didn't focus on Ethan Reckless. Uh, it focused on Anna, mm-hmm. um, his his erstwhile sidekick and owner of the, the cinema, and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Ethan didn't appear until the end, and... Uh, my understanding is that the next hardcover is going to be about what Ethan was doing during that time. Uh, so that was cool. And then my other image hardcover was Arrowsmith, uh, so smart in their fine uniforms, which is the prequel uh, to the series that's been released in single issues from Image by Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco uh, uh, about the, the alternate uh, alternate history, World War One, where, where magic is a, is a thing. Um, and I'm really, I was really enjoying the single issues, uh, even after the first one. So I, I ordered that hardcover immediately, and it was great. So this, this is what we mean by wanting to do maybe some book clubs and so forth again, because I've no doubt we'll have a series of reckless ones uh, to start with, and then obviously other things we're picking up as well. It'll be good to chat at those at a bit more uh, in a bit more detail. So, but uh, yeah, for this week we're going to just focus on the single issues and. You know, you probably guess what my pick of the week is because I pretty much said what it was in my last review. So, uh, Flashpoint Beyond Zero launched this week. So, a zero issue before the six issue miniseries kicks off in earnest. So, written by Jeff Johns and art in this one is Eduardo Risso again as well. So, yeah, again, absolutely no surprise that after the very fulfilling starter of last week's pick, the reissue of Night of Vengeance, that the main course of Flashpoint Beyond should be my pick this week. Uh, in other news, water is wet. <laughs> Flashpoint Beyond picks up seeds that Jeff Johns has been planting through the DC Universe for well over a decade at this point. You know, not just his original Flashpoint run, but elements of Doomsday Clock have made their way in here as we open the book with some characters who will be very familiar to readers of that title. So, issue zero, it opens with the mime and the marionette helping Bruce sift through the lair of the elusive Time Masters. They are there to retrieve Janie Slater's watch. Love me some Watchmen references. We're already off to a good start here, uh, which has been lost in time, but a valuable trinket nonetheless. So as Batman collects what he came for, the story cuts away to the Flashpoint timeline, which is supposed to no longer exist. 
you know, Dr. Thomas Wayne gets a rude awakening when he realizes he is back in the same timeline that he fought so hard to erase. The world is only getting worse day by day and it is hard living by the standards set by his son who is always referred to as the better Batman. If there is one person who can set all this right, it can only be Barry Allen, the fastest man alive. You know, I spoke about it a little bit in, in the previous Flashpoint, but yeah, Thomas Wayne's Batman, he's always been a bit of a fan favourite and has found himself back in the DC Universe intermittently throughout the years. You know, there was during Tom Keane's run on Batman, both with City and Bane and the Button. There was the Flashpoint version of The Dark Knight was reintroduced there. In Joshua Williamson's Justice League Incarnate, Flashpoint Batman is once again established as a temporal anomaly. Um... You know, he's possessed by the Great Darkness and then supposedly obliterated by Darkseid's Omega Beam. So he's been a, he's a bit all over the place. But, and it's actually been a while, believe it or not. <laughs> we probably don't think it because Doomsday Clock took nine years to come out. But it's actually been a while since Jeff John's written anything for DC. You know, most of his focus over the last few years seems to have been on his creator-owned Gagger series at Image Comics. Which is rather shocking when you take a moment to think about it. You know, Jeff was once the publisher's golden boy, you know. But, you know, there's been a lot of creative shakeups at DC over the past few years. And, you know, he's maybe been slightly marginalized. So Flashpoint Beyond actually, in many ways, feels like a bit of a homecoming. You know, he returns to not only his own storyline, but also picks up some of those loose threads from Doomsday Clock. But what's great about Flashpoint Beyond Zero is that there are tons of Easter eggs and nods to DC's history and alternative timelines, which essentially helps to explain the company's current mantra of everything matters. Once again, the title is elevated by Wardo Risso. You know, he's, he's an artist who doesn't seem to be doing an awful lot these days. You know, I think Moonshine is the last title I can think of that he lent regular art to. It was a, a werewolf story with himself and Azarello. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm a huge fanboy and would love to see him doing more. But once again, he's the perfect artist for the Flashpoint universe as his treatment of the timeline is awesome. Consistently leaning into the grimness of the world. And I mentioned her before, but his longtime collaborator Trish Mulvihill is back on colours, and of course does a great job bringing the art to life. You know, with the same amount of joie de vivre as before. Risso's character designs are once again fantastic. As are his panel layouts. You know, he's he's really he's able to flick between traditional grid storytelling and in innovative action layouts at the drop of a hat. You know, quite simply, a master of his craft. The only negative is that he won't stick around to be the series regular artist in this which I really hoped he was going to be. Uh, but yeah, Flashpoint Beyond Zero, it, it doesn't let its foot off the gas at any moment, and it raises lots of questions while answering very few. It's very plot-driven, so the book can be quite heavy in exposition, but it's not all just dialogue, dialogue, long speeches, long speeches, you know, telling us everything we need to know. It's instead through character interactions, passive voiceovers, or progression of the story. But as the prologue also alludes to much greater events, there's a new villain introduced, the Clockwork Killer, who rears their head and promises to tie into the larger plot as the story progresses. We also have a very much more violent and direct Aquaman in this Flashpoint world, and as this violence reaches Thomas's door, he has to put the lofty ideals he learned from his son aside rather quickly and embrace his darker self and his base instincts. You know, Flashpoint Beyond Zero ends by ushering in new misadventures for Thomas Wayne, while Bruce's actions can create a flashpoint of consequences throughout the known multiverse. So, in other words... Welcome back, Flashpoint Batman. How much we have missed you. Great first issue, and again, can't wait for the other six issues to uh, to quickly follow up. So yeah, Flashpoint Beyond Zero is my pick of the week for the 13th of April. So do pray tell. Finish this um, off then. Okay, I will do. I will do. Um, 
so I think mine's a mine, mine's sort of a foregone conclusion nearly as soon as you see the you see the writer artist on it, uh, and that is the Rocketeer, the Great Race number one. So I'm sticking with, I guess, uh, you know, the my my previous my previous title, uh, where the Sundown was something of a of a period piece, and this is very much that. It's uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the first appearance of the Rocketeer. Um, the Ace stunt pilot Cliff Sicord has returned from his New York adventures to a West Coast steeped in paranoia over the looming war in Europe, that being World War II. Uh, having finally had enough of his near-death scrapes as the high-flying Rocketeer, the only thing in Cliff's crosshairs is the Great Race, a prestigious, prestigious winner-takes-all air race that runs from California to France. Maybe it's finally time to smarten up and fly right by taking his best girl Betty to Paris. But other parties want to win the race for their own nefarious ends, and Cliff will need to decide which prize is truly the most valuable of all. Um, each issue of this will also contain an oral history featuring Dave Stevens' friends, family, and fellow artists, all called together by Kelvin Mao, who's a longtime friend of Stevens, the uh, the creator of the, the Rocketeer and uh, also the director of the forthcoming uh, documentary on the beloved artist. It's been... As I said, 40 years since Dave Stevens' adventure comic, The Rocketeer, was was first published in the pages of an anthology series called Star Slayer. And despite there only been a handful of stories existing that feature the old school adventure, Cliff Secord and his friends, you know, there's a, a loyal fan following, especially amongst comic creators. Um, when IDW launched a new anthology series based on the character back 10 years ago, a host of big name creators, including Alex Ross, produced a collection of short stories that read like a love letter to Stephen's original post. For those who don't know, The Rocketeer is heavily influenced by classic Hollywood movie serials of the, the 1940s and 50s and the larger than life actors of, of that era. Stephen's uh, was was drawn to the likes of the, the the beauty of Betty Page and the distinctive looks of the actors of the time. And uh, the original story was an absolutely unashamed tribute to latter-edge golden day Hollywood with, with very obvious moustache-twirling villains and larger-than-life stunts and a lovable rogue for the lead. Uh, you know, the artwork in the book was stunning. The story was pure entertainment in, in, the, in the same sort of style as Indiana Jones, uh, and it's not surprising that you know so many within the comic industry are, are drawn to the potential of the character. Um, over the years, a number of of creators have worked in the Rocketeer, from from Mark Wade to Alex Ross, each you know bringing their own style and idiosyncrasies and design to that mastered by Dean Stevens in the eighties. And some have been more successful than others, and have been more able to capture the spirit of the character while still making it relevant to a modern a modern audience. And I think here we have Irishman Stephen Mooney uh, on writing and art, uh, Len Grady on colour and Sean Lee on on letters. And all it takes is one look sort of at, at Stephen Mooney's previous comic work to explain why he is the perfect fit for this franchise. Aside from his artwork on titles like uh, Images the Dead Hand from 2018 written by Kyle Higgins and his own Half Past Danger from IDW in uh, 2013 with Jordi Berlayar who's already contributed to The Legend of the Rocketeer. Uh, Mooney has also produced work for Dynamite's Betty Page comics you know so his style is really suited to the 
the art deco sort of style or romanticized Hollywood of the 40s and, and the 50s. The, the Great Race opens with a scene setting action sequence that, that puts the story both historically and thematically uh, where it needs to be. It's a news report spreads rumors that German spies are training in the hills around California, prompting Cliff to don the jetpack and fly into action. And Mooney incorporates, you know, a real uh, classic superhero costume change and a flight into action into the aesthetics of the of the 1940s adventure comics and serials. You know, the result is just looks great and it's really entertaining and it, it captures the excitement of you know, watching adventure serials and, and the pleasures of reading the original Stevens comics, you know, and those, those strips. I say the, the emphasis is really on excitement and, and adventure with, with, a, uh, with a, big, a big splodge of style on the side. Um, midway through the issue, Cliff meets uh, Dilton Nicosi. He's a, like a, a Tony Stark or Howard Stark type wealthy inventor who asks Cliff to fly his experimental plane in the Great Race. It's a race between uh, planes that runs from California to Paris, France. Uh, at the minute, you know, now, nowadays, you know, that's not much of a distance, but back then it was it was a big journey. Uh, so it's interesting to watch Cliff decide whether or not he's going to do it. And, you know, you can really enjoy his interplay with Betty, who's Cliff's girlfriend, totally modelled by Dave Stevens after the immortalised beauty of Betty Page and drawn exactly like that by, by Stephen Mooney, although written with considerably more depth than previously. And, and also with Peeve, the old pilot who serves as as Cliff's confidant and mechanic and, uh, and uh, mentor in a way. From the cover of it to the final page, The Rocketeer, The Great Race number one is a total thrill ride and a beautiful homage to a 40-year-old franchise. Uh, Stephen Mooney clearly has the utmost respect for the original material and he really enjoys playing in the in the Rocketeer sandbox. The artwork and the colours and the lettering all are classic Hollywood in their aesthetic and complement the real high adventure narrative. Um, and I mean, not all the stories that have ever been written about the Rocketeer capture the the real essence of the original or, or even do the, the character justice. So the great race, however, I mean, I think could have come from the, the pen of, of, of Dave Stevens himself. It's, it's almost a perfect follow-up, I think to the original. And Mooney also does the art and, you know, his art and it just shines through completely captures the look and the feel of the thirties and forties. Uh, his drawings of Betty are absolutely stunning. And any fan of Betty Page will appreciate how many, sort of captures her essence uh, the you know the technology is, is of the era is is there as well you know all the <laughs> the buttons and dials and levers and lights <laughs> are, are, and the planes and the cars the clothing you know is just is so spot on you know the the flowing dresses of the period and the you know the the, the baggy trousers you know the you know the the, the the trousers that are sort of baggy around the thighs on the men uh, you know, that sort of uh, Indiana Jones sort of thing. Um, so that, you know, Mooney, O'Grady Lee, clearly fans of Stephen's work. And you can see from the pages that they're enjoying themselves and just loving what they're doing. Um, this, you know, first and foremost, it does exactly what the Rocketeer is supposed to do. It's action, it's entertainment, it's fun. And this absolutely 100% succeeds uh, in that. Um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it's got depth and it's it's just got, you know, it's just it's just a great great solid story, uh, pleasure to read, uh, and reading the book was nearly akin to watching the likes of of Indiana Jones or you know one of those great old movie serials from 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 times long ago. It was just just fantastic. Great first issue. Great first issue. Did you read? Oh, I read. It's uh, it, it's interesting because for a long time IDW has been the home for loads of franchises and stuff like that. The only title that made its way onto my pull list was Canto, but mm-hmm. it's nice to see another one make it on there. I mean, I'd normally associate this kind of pulpy stuff with Dynamite, mm-hmm. but yeah, this was great. You know, local legend Stephen Mooney, of course, yeah, as, as Deck as uh, Deck would say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing better than reading a comic where you can tell that the creators have real reverence for the source material and i think it just sort of drips off every page and yeah i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it i'm in it for the for the duration of the series i mean i've been a fan of mooney ever since half past danger you know it was i think it was one of the first things i recommended to you when you you first started coming to the store as well there's a couple of volumes of it uh you know jurassic park i mean the man loves pulpy stuff you know, well, and, that, and that really shines through so yeah great first issue i think it's either four or five issues off the top of my head uh but i'd happily take a wee a wee ongoing on this so yeah yeah definitely no, i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it it was uh it was just a just a great great piece of work i believe there's also a, a retrospective hardback dave stevens 40 years of the rocketeer coming out soon i might try and you know represent in the the original strips uh, uh so i think i might uh, i might grab that and also the the back matter in this is, is, is really cool too um makes me want to go and uh, and rewatch the uh, joe johnson uh, 1991 rocketeer movie yeah that was an era of movies like that that is very underappreciated i love the shadow with alec baldwin and penelope mm. ann miller i think it's a i think it's a great adaptation always yeah. always said to me alec baldwin should have been batman but if you can't be batman be the shadow I yeah suppose. yeah no i totally agree the uh yeah that that shadow movie's fantastic as well and there was a billy z and phantom as well at the same time oh yes if i recall again underappreciated mm. heard someone in the store today I actually slagged that movie off saying it was terrible and i uh, I, I just had to bite my tongue a wee bit well I, good for you yeah. good for you but uh yeah <laughs> i uh, i'm looking forward to the to the second issue of this as well uh yeah it was it was really maybe if we were doing picks of the month this would have been that oh well, I mean, let's do that just for the crack. So we have four picks for this uh, sort of four-week period. What would be your pick out of the four? Would it be the Rocketeer? I think it. W- I think it would. It would be a hard pick. Um, from we have demons, Ghost Rider, and uh, and the Rocketeer, uh, and West of Sundown. I would say West of Sundown would be vying with the Rocketeer uh for for my 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 pick of the month but i think uh the rocketeer would 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 take it by a uh by a nose rocketeer by a nose so if you can only afford one book this month based on keith's recommendations rocketeer is where it's at for me despite my reverence and love for flashpoint how much i enjoyed dark ages i think rogues number one would take it for me just because it was an out of nowhere sort of surprise and just so brilliantly executed so rogues would be my standout out of the four that we've just chatted about there so trust alan to pick the most expensive book out of them all <laughs> so yeah that is the end of this week's podcast so that is covering the uh dates of 23rd to march right up until the 13th or, or sorry up until yeah up until the 13th of april so next review show we'll endeavor to cover at least four weeks maybe even five weeks and that'll kick things off with releases from the 20- 
20th of April and onwards. Again, the previews pod will probably be the next one that we fire up though, so keep an eye out for that. That'll be the June previews book for titles due in August. Geez, where is this year going? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we may just have to do a few wee discussions about possibility of reviving the book club, maybe even mm-hmm. with a, a different guest or two each time. So, And uh, looking back uh, along the, the stream, if you haven't had a lot of chance to listen to our interviews with either Clay Mann or a friend of the store, a guy who we've, we've interviewed a couple of times, uh, this was a particularly enlightening interview, and uh, and also our interview with Toron Gronbeck, who uh, the writer of uh, of uh, Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor, along with Warhammer 40k Sisters of Battle, and uh, and uh, yeah, a few other bits and pieces. Uh, definitely, uh, that was that was a really fun interview, and one of our longest, wasn't it? Really fun, one of our longest, and very much not safe for work. <laughs> so make of that what you will. But uh, yeah, just one final reminder as well. Of course, coming up soon, June 11th, we have the, the signing in store with the one and only Ram V as well. Two o'clock to five o'clock, free signing on the day. Uh, so keep your uh, get that one marked down in your diary as well. That's going to be a good day, uh, sort of celebrating five years of the store. So just as I say, where is this year going? Where has five years come from? So, mm-hmm. And what, that's June the 11th to until four? Two until five. Two until five. Three hours of RAM goodness. Three Good hours. stuff. <laughs> so uh, thanks as always to Keith for uh, chatting through all of this geeky nonsense with me. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as ever, you know, anything appeals to you or you want more information regarding future releases or collected editions, anything like that, just get in touch with the store and we'll certainly guide you right. So uh, again, hope you guys enjoyed this and we will be back with you very soon. So I've been Alan Taylor and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.